are listening to the podcast ministry of Portadown Independent Methodist Church. We welcome you and thank you for joining us. We trust that you are blessed by the ministry of God's Word today. Second Samuel chapter 6 is where our reading is from. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bailey of Judah to bring them up from thence, to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel pled before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he named the place, the name of the place, Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him, because of the ark of God. I think it is uh, fair to say that a simple reading of the verses that we have read this morning is sufficient uh, to affect us quite deeply. This is one of those chapters that maybe even when somebody gets saved, if they're reading through the Bible, this is one of those chapters that you remember. The contents that we have read here, we find that they shock us and they move us and they stun us and they definitely leave us subdued. That is the effect that they had on David. And the fact is that this chapter starts with jubilation, it starts with music, it starts with singing, and and everything seems to be going exceptionally well, and then suddenly and shockingly, we find there is a man lying dead. And uh, it is really the circumstances of his death that leave us so shocked and subdued. So what is the background then uh, to this death of Uzzah in this chapter 
that we have read. Well, it says in verse one, the first word is, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So presumably some of these men were those that had fought for David and with David against the Philistines in chapter five, where God had broken through and defeated the Philistines. And so some of those same men are assembling again, it tells us here. And in chapter 5, we also read that Jerusalem had been conquered by David. And David had begun to build it up. Even uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, outside of Israel, had joined in this project supplying wood for David to build himself a house. And so the background here is that these were heady days for Israel. These were good times for Israel. And obviously, the deliverance from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the being fed with manna were all amazing and, and spectacular. But in a sense, these here are unprecedentedly good days as the Philistines have been defeated, Jerusalem has been taken, David is the king, and Jerusalem is being built up. And now these are heady times, they are good times. And David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to the city that he has captured. And so there are 30,000 men, for this is a suitably grand and a royal procession for this occasion. This is in some ways where the ultimate king, the shepherd king, the God of Israel is coming to take up residence in Jerusalem itself. And so there are people playing these different musical instruments. They are playing them with all of their might, it tells us. In Chronicles, it tells us they are singing. They're singing their hearts out and the emotions are running sky high. And so we could say that the context here is very, very straightforward. This is not mercy drops falling around Israel. Now the showers of blessing are falling. David, God's anointed, is their king. He has been accepted by all of the nation. He has conquered the Philistines. He has captured Jerusalem. This is, uh, this is showers of blessing that are falling all around them. And that's the context of this man's death. And I think it does remind us that there are spiritual dangers lurking in the shadows, even of success and of blessing. This is not something that perhaps we find intuitive to believe. We think if there were showers of blessing falling here today, there would be no dangers lurking in any corners. They would kind of have been, been, been pushed back. But no, here in the showers of blessing, there are spiritual dangers lurking even in the shadow of success. This can be true for us privately. It can be true for God's people corporately, corporately that when, when God is answering prayer and when God is blessing, there can be spiritual dangers lurking even there in the shadows. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, Israel did not deal well with blessing and with success. That is a simple observation that we see in the book of Judges. They would be on their backs against the wall and they would pray and God would bless them by his grace and they would not handle blessing and prosperity and success well at all. 
In times of blessing, it is easy for a a kind of breezy attitude towards God to develop, a a sense of entitlement. There must be something that, that we are some way entitled to this, or we must be really good that God is blessing us. There can be a tendency to presume upon the blessing of God. If God has blessed us like this today, then he will bless us like this tomorrow. And there can even, when the showers of blessing are falling, be a carelessness and something of a cavalier attitude towards holy and divine things. Even in the book of Acts, when it's not just showers of blessing that were falling, this was downpours of blessing, and you have Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. There are spiritual dangers lurking even in the shadows of success. If you read a book on the history of revivals, it will convince you that this is true in the New Testament era also. Seasons of incredible refreshing, seasons of revival where they come to an end and it is not due to the world's behavior but to God's people. This can be distressing for us. How can it be that when showers of blessing are falling and and the winds of the Spirit are blowing that the people have prayed for for years and that even in the midst of it there are spiritual dangers and a cavalier attitude, a kind of presumption on the goodness and grace of God and the Holy Spirit is grieved. Times of revival, people have gone off to wild extremes. They've got carried away with emotionalism. They've got caught up in a a sectarian spirit against their brothers and sisters. And while the showers of blessing were falling and the winds of the Spirit were blowing, the Spirit was grieved and the showers stopped falling and the winds stopped blowing. And it wasn't the world's fault. It was within the people of God. And so we could ask this morning, are you enjoying a season of blessing from God? Are there prayers being answered? Are, are you knowing the much of the presence and the, the joy of, of, of delight in the presence of God? This chapter is a clarion call to remember every gift that he has given you, every gift. Trace it to the Father's hand and it has been a gift of his grace that we don't deserve. Every time we receive a blessing from God, it is for the glory of the one who has blessed us. It is for the exaltation of his grace. And our response is utter prostration before the throne of grace. God, there are spiritual dangers lurking in the shadows of success. And and I want to keep my gaze on you. I don't want to presume upon your grace. I don't want to feel entitled to your gifts. You have given this and it is for your glory and for your honor. And I want it to... to to stir up a desire to walk carefully and diligently before you, but not to presume upon your grace. So the simple fact is that, that the context of this man's death is that showers of blessing were falling and they were good times here in Israel. So good that David, having conquered Jerusalem, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in this city. Now, this Ark of the Covenant, we have mentioned this in our study of 1 Samuel, but it was obviously the centerpiece of the tabernacle, God's dwelling place on earth. The the tabernacle became the temple, and it was a little bit of heaven on earth. 
And, and it, it was, the, the ark was, was like the beating heart of the tabernacle. Nothing else in the, in the tabernacle made sense without referring to the ark. It was this wooden box or chest covered with gold on the inside and on the out, a golden lid, which was the mercy seat where the blood of atonement was sprinkled, and then there were these cherubims on the top, and this is where God said, my presence on earth will dwell. I will dwell between the cherubims. The ark was not God. The ark was not a physical representation of God in any way, but this was the place that God had said, I, the invisible and eternal God, will be present in the midst of my people above the ark of the covenant. So this was a, a, a really a, a, a staggering statement of God's grace and God's love. The holy God of the universe is saying, I do want to dwell with my people. I want my people to know me. I want my people to worship me. I want to be near my people. I want to be present. And that was in the tabernacle on this Ark of the Covenant. Of course, the heavens of the heavens cannot contain God. He is everywhere, but he associated his presence in a unique way with this ark. Even there in verse two at the end, it says, whose name is called the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. So this ark of the covenant represented that God was present with his people and here it was, he uniquely associated his presence with this ark. Not only did it represent God's presence, but it reminded them of God's uh, power. It is described as the throne from which he reigned. Even here it is referred to as the Ark of the Lord of Hosts. Every king was known by the size and the might of his army. And Israel's God is saying to them, I am present among you and I am infinitely powerful. I am the Lord of hosts, the, the one who has a vast multitudes of angels to do his bidding. One angel in the Bible could kill tens of thousands of men and God has a, has a host, a vast multitude of these. So when people came to the temple, they realized our God is present with us and he is powerful. And so we are welcome to come and meet with God. We are welcome. That's the amazing love of our God that he dwells in our midst. But if you come to meet with our God, you must be careful. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of infinite power. And so the, the temple was kind of full of welcome signs. You're welcome to come and meet with God. But there were warning signs. Be careful. He is powerful. And it also spoke of his purity. This item, this Ark of the Covenant, was the only item that was in the Holy of Holies. It was on the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or of the temple, behind a thick, heavy blue curtain. It was a reminder, God is pure, God is holy. Inside the Ark were the Ten Commandments, God's perfect standard for his people. So anytime one of the children of Israel was coming to the tabernacle to meet with God, there is God is present amongst his people, and he's powerful, and he is pure. 
And this ark then was the heart of God's house where God was said to dwell, God was said to sit or to reign on this earthly throne. The whole tabernacle was a mixture of welcome signs and warning signs. Welcome, God loves his people and he wants to be in their midst, but he is holy and you are sinful. So warning sign, you don't just come carelessly into the presence of God. You can't just know the presence of God and the power of God while being careless regarding his purity. When they would come, they would come and they would know, I I have to bring a sacrifice. I I have sinned that holy standard, the, the holiness of his nature. I have fallen short of that. And if I just kind of breeze my way in, I would die on the spot. I, I, I'm welcome to come, but I need to come carefully and by means of sacrifice. And in some way, God would accept the death of an animal in their place. And the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the golden lid, the, the mercy seat of this Ark of the Covenant. So God was teaching his people, I am present in your midst, I am powerful, but you cannot know my presence and my power while being careless with my purity. If you imagine, which might take quite a bit of imagination, but if you can imagine you're out camping somewhere at night and you think to yourself, I'm going to get a blazing fire going in the midst of our camp, and you do. There's however many people, you light a blazing fire in the middle of the camp, it is blazing, it is crackling, it is, it is a great fire that's going. It is present in the midst of you all, and it's full of welcome and warning. It's full of welcome and warning. And if you say, I I only want to take its light, that's all that I want from this fire, and I'm going to ignore the warnings regarding its heat, then you are going to get burned. You, You can try that. All I want is the light. That's all that I want. I choose to want the light, and I choose to ignore the heat and the burning and all of that. You end up going to get burned. The temple was saying that God, the infinite, mighty God of the universe, is present in a unique way in his house on earth. He is present and he is powerful, but you cannot choose to know his presence and his power while being careless regarding his purity, because if you do, you will not only get burned, you will die. And so this was what this Ark of the Covenant was this place where God dwelled, this place where God sat and he ruled and he reigned. And throughout the Old Testament, they were given very careful instruction. Numbers 4.15, thou shalt not touch any holy thing lest they die. If they touched the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. Whenever it was being moved, they were to cover it because if you looked at the ark of God, you would die. So everything about this was, 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 was screaming in a sense, God is pure and God is holy and God is righteous. And if you're careless with that and if you're casual with that, you're going to die. Indeed, this was one of the great lessons in 1 Samuel. You'll remember the priests who were serving in the tabernacle, Hophni and Phinehas, were committing awful sins. 
The Philistines showed up and Israel thought, get the ark, get the ark. This thing. If, if we get the presence of God on the scene and we get the power of God on the scene, then all will be well. While we are flagrantly careless regarding his purity and his holiness. And as we realized in our study of 1 Samuel, you can't deal with God like that. And Hophni and Phinehas died and Israel lost the battle and this ark was taken away by the Philistines. You cannot trifle with the purity of God and enjoy his power and his presence. God is indescribably, incomprehensibly, infinitely holy. So this morning we could ask, child of God, how is your obedience? How is your reverence? How does your heart tremble before the presence of a holy God? We are cruel to ourselves if we deflect these questions to someone else. There can be, I'm sure, a good motive in saying that this is a good message for other people, but it's a dead giveaway of a lack of sensitivity in our own hearts to the holiness of God if we do not answer these ourselves. Isaiah the prophet in the early chapters of the book of Isaiah, you can read it. He is saying, woe to the wicked. Woe to them that rise up early and get drunk. Road to them that call evil good. Woe is you and you and you. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God high and lifted up and his train filling the temple, Isaiah finds himself crying these new words. Not woe is you and you and you, but woe is me. There's something in this passage that is reminding all who know God of the, of the importance that even in the midst of his blessings and in the midst of his goodness to us and in the midst of his kindness to us that we never lose sight of the fact that God is blisteringly, indescribably holy. And when we get into his presence, we are aware of this. Our hearts tremble with reverence and with fear before God. How is your obedience? How is your reverence? How is your carefulness in how you live? How does your heart tremble with a longing that you might walk in obedience to this God who has saved you by his grace? So we see this lesson writ large across for Samuel. You can't know God in his power and in his presence while being careless regarding his purity. You can't, it, it cannot be done. And in 1 Samuel, this was not only taught once, it was taught multiple times. When the Philistines took this ark off into their land, they were humiliated and they were terrified. You'll remember Dagon fell on his face and then they had this humility. They had to pick their God up. They had to go in and pick their God up and set him up again. And the next day they came in and they fall and his head was off and his hands were off like, like this judgment that had come upon him. And they, they move the ark and they come out in these boils and they are terrified and they return it back to Israel. And even when they get it back to Israel, the children of Israel looked inside the ark and God smote them and thousands of them died. 
So when David comes here in 2 Samuel 6 to move the Ark of the Covenant, he has a lot of Bible to go by, and he has a lot of history to go by. You're not moving a million-dollar vase here. You're, you're not moving some historic relic here. This is, this is not just something that, that has got a lot of monetary value. It's covered in gold. No, this is the Ark of the Covenant where the God of the universe has associated his presence that he dwells there in the midst of his people. And so when we find them here in this passage and in verse 3, they set the ark of God upon a new cart. I'm not sure what your thinking is. They set the ark of God upon a new cart. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 25 and verse 12. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 12. This is when God is given instruct, giving instructions for the ark. And he explains here in Exodus 25 and verse 12. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. So God gave very clear instructions here that four rings would be on the four feet of the Ark of the Covenant so that nobody needed to touch it. You would place these poles through the rings and then four men would carry it, according to number seven, nine, on their shoulders. This was God's throne. And so as we watch them here loading it onto a cart, we do have to say this. They are innovating and they are improvising in their dealings here with the Ark of the Covenant. They are deviating, we might say, from God's word in how they are to deal and handle God's presence. This is innovation. This is improvising here. Instead of four men carrying it on their shoulders, they are setting it on a, on a cart to be carted off by these oxen. Now, we can say that there are areas in which God has left us to use wisdom and to exercise our godly wisdom. And it is a real sign of spiritual maturity to recognize what these issues are and what they aren't. There are issues of freedom. There are issues of conscience. And Paul deals with these substantially in Romans and Corinthians, where the Bible hasn't clearly spoken and God's people are given freedom and they are given conscience to choose. But this here is not one of them. God has spoken. And they are moving away from what God had explicitly taught to something that he had not. We might wonder where did they come up with this idea of the cart? And the answer is rather crazy. The Philistines, when they had brought the cart, the ark, back into Israel, had indeed put it on a cart like this in 1 Samuel chapter 6. 
And so perhaps the Israelites thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. It, it didn't stumble, it didn't fall off there, and it certainly would be convenient instead of four men carrying a rather heavy item for uh, about nine miles from, from, from where it was back to Jerusalem. It would have been convenient. Perhaps they reasoned if we bring the Rolls Royce of carts, a new one, then surely in some way that compensates, doesn't it? Maybe God will be impressed. I mean, we did provide a Rolls Royce of a cart to do this work. But First Samuel had already reminded them that obedience is better than sacrifice. I think it is vital for us to ask this morning, is it possible that in your dealings and in your seeking of God, child of God, that your desires for ease and for convenience are causing you to soften on your obedience to explicit scripture? It's possible that truth can settle quickly to the bottom of our hearts that are not stirred by the holiness of God. Anyone who knows the human heart can identify with this, 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 this desire for convenience and then our hearts can begin to play tricks. I know God said this, but if I compensate with some sacrificial act over here, then doesn't it all balance out? I mean, I'll be a little soft on my obedience over here, but I'll double down on my sacrifice over here. And when we do this, are we not behaving more like pagans, really, than Christians, as though God could in some way be bought off by our own efforts? And this passage awakens us to the fact, when we come and we seek after God and we are meeting with God, it must be on his terms and not our own. God is incomprehensibly holy. He is a consuming fire. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And we would have to say that not only does the world have nothing to teach a child of God in regards to their dealings with God, but we have nothing even to teach ourselves. A passage like this stirs within us. We meet with God in the pages of Scripture He inspired, and they and they alone are our infallible guide. We cannot enjoy the presence and the power of God while we are playing casual and careless and breezy with the purity of who God is. And doesn't every one of us who are saved by his grace this morning say that's true? You might even be here this morning and you say, I know that's true. I have been playing casual with the Holy, and I don't know the presence of God the way I used to. And so we arrive here at this tragic moment. While on the crest of a wave of success, with voices that are hoarse, singing praises to God, the oxen pulling the cart stumbled. That's what First Chronicles 13 explains. The ark carrying the cart carrying the ark of the covenant, the throne of God. The oxen stumbled 
And the ark here began to shake. This wasn't a thousand pound vase. It wasn't a million pound vase. It was the ark of the Lord of hosts and it couldn't tumble into the dirt. It's unthinkable the mistake that they had made in putting this on the card. And here user reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And I think our sensibilities here go a little haywire because we think, was this man sincere? And the answer is, he seemed to be. Did he mean well? And the answer is, it looks like it. Was his motivation good in that moment? Well, it's hard to argue that. Would you have done the same thing? And the answer is probably. But verse 7 says the anger of the Lord was kindled against him and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God. Now we are shocked by this. David was angry. We read about this. And yet surely this passage is a gift to us from God. How do you react to this in your own heart? I think if you can capture your reaction to this, he was, listen, the, the, the original mistake had been made and, and now he, he seems to have been doing his best and he seems to have had a good motive and, and what if he hadn't all of these questions? Just capture your answer for a moment of your reaction. And I think that this reaction of ours proves to us the sheer separateness of God, the otherness of God, that he is holy, he is different. There's something in us that wants to believe, surely, surely uh, sincerity counts for something. Surely all of the corresponding sacrifices counted for something. But here we find it's like the power is pulled on a music player or the battery dies on the phone, this whole procession falls silent because there lying by the cart is a corpse and this man has died. Why did he die? The Bible says God was angry and God smote him. And this man, a sinful man, had touched the Ark of the Covenant and God smote him dead. It's what God said would happen if you did this. A sinful man smitten by a holy God. And I think it is important to say if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian and there are millions, there are millions of people in the world who think surely if I'm sincere and surely if I do my best and surely if I try, then God will be pleased. And this passage says, no, God is holy and we are sinful. And when a sinful person comes into contact with a holy God, the judgment is death. And yet as David stewed on this for a while, the conclusion he reached was this, God was right and David and those men had been wrong. And David's anger gave way to a holy and to a reverent fear. 
David realized, in my dealings with God, I want his presence and I want his power, but I cannot be careless about his purity. This is a shocking moment, and there are other moments like this in scriptures that shock us, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. But there is one moment that outshocks them all, and it too involves a corpse, this one taken down off a Roman cross and led in a borrowed tomb. Why this corpse? And Isaiah said it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This man died as a result of bearing divine wrath and he'd never put a foot wrong. He was bearing divine wrath and he'd never been careless. He'd never deviated from perfect obedience. He'd never innovated or improvised with his obedience. He'd never tried to replace obedience with sacrifice. He always, always did those things that were pleasing to his father. And yet here we find a corpse and it has pleased God to bruise him. Who is this man who has died? And the answer is, he is the God of 2 Samuel chapter 6, who sat enthroned on the ark, who broke out against Uzzah, and he has come out, if you like, clothed in flesh and in blood. That's who this corpse is, righteous and pure and holy and sinless and undefiled. And yet the wrath of God has broken out on him. That should shock us to the core more than this should. Why did this happen? Well, he'd come to a place not far from where this had happened to Uzzah. And outside the walls of Jerusalem, divine wrath broke out on him and he hung dead on the cross. Why, why, why was this? The Lord's anger for against my sin and against your sin broke out against his only begotten son enfleshed there on the cross. And he died a corpse even though he was innocent. If Uses' uh, shocking death here reminds us then of the holiness of God, then surely Christ reminds us that he is a God of holy love. And even here in this passage, David will be amazed as where the ark is, where he puts it, it begins to receive blessing. The God who is, dwells there is a God of love who wants to meet with his people. But when we come to him wanting his presence and his power, we cannot ever be careless about his purity. And the only way, the only way, the only way that we can get to enjoy his presence and his power and to admire and study the beauty of his purity is when we come carefully by the way of the Lord Jesus whose blood was shed in our place and sprinkles now the mercy seat. If you're not saved this morning, I have to say there'll come a day when you will meet this God. You'll meet the God of Uzzah in this passage. 
You'll be in his majestic presence. You'll recognize his power. And you'll be shocked by his purity. And his anger will come down on you unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will spend an eternity lost unless you come to the Lord Jesus. And you will have an eternity if you don't to dwell on the justness of what God has done. And if you are saved this morning in the light of the cross, in the light of the glory of a God of holy love, Is it not fair to say that the writer of Hebrews was right when he said that we are to serve God with reverence and with godly fear and that this is acceptable? In the presence of God, we do not pick and choose the love of God or the holiness of God. We find in God a fullness of both. But we cannot know his presence and his power while being careless with his purity. Once again, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, visit our website, portadownimc.org, or find us on Facebook at Portadown IMC. God bless.